This is quantization. Hi, we are Arezu Talibzadeh and Kavar Shurinia, and this is our podcast on inclusion. Quantization is an independent project with support of Inclusive Design Research Center at Okad University. Welcome to the fifth episode of Quantization. In this episode, Trevor Schultz is in conversation with Hal Plotkin and Yuta Treviranos on Platform Co-op. First, let's start with our guests. Hi there, are you there? It was Yuta Treviranos. Yuta is the founder and lead figure of the Inclusive Design Research Center. The main focus of her practices is to help ensure that emerging connected systems and practices are designed for the full range of human diversity. She is hosting this episode. Hal Plotkin. Yeah, I'm here. Hal's still there. Hal is Senior Open Policy Fellow at Creative Commons, journalist, radio producer, and social activist. I'm Hal Plotkin. I'm the Senior Open Policy Fellow at Creative Commons USA. And finally, Trevor Schultz. And Trevor, are you there? Hi, Hal. Trevor here. Trevor is a scholar activist and associate professor at the New School in New York City. The most important part of his activities for this episode is his leading role at the platform cooperativism. I'm Trevor Schultz. I'm a scholar activist at the New School and leading part of the platform cooperativism movement. At the time of recording this episode, Trevor was in Berlin, Hal was in California, and Utah was in our studio in Toronto. We used combination of different platforms for recording the conversation. The complications of Skype and a conference phone that we've never used before and everything. So I'm glad we got you all together. Good. Well, I'm delighted to do this, and it's good to hear everybody's voice. Hi, Trevor. Hey, so nice to hear you. Platform cooperativism is a growing term and active movement. If you haven't heard or faced the term yet, you will be soon. For this episode, we have invited Trevor Schultz, the leading part of the movement, to talk about platform cooperativism. This is Season 1, called Signal. Episode 5, Platform Cooperativism. question we often ask when we do these is what keeps you up at night and what motivates you to get up in the morning so take it from that perspective (laughs) 
that that would mean that they're asleep in between. Oh uh, yeah, um, well, <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> um, oh, I feel very motivated. I feel extremely energized by the many wonderful people in my life. Uh, the people in this uh, ecosystem of cooperatives and platform cooperatives that. Uh, I mean, almost every day, you know, I hear about new initiatives uh, that are starting. Uh, two days ago, I spoke with a woman who is starting a platform co-op of independent bookstores in uh, Northern California. The day before, I spoke with uh, a group of activists uh, in uh, South Africa, Cape Town, uh, who sued uh, Uber for employee status and are now trying to move the 10,000 Uber drivers into a platform cooperative. And then I spoke with a young entrepreneur from uh, Aarhus, uh, Denmark, who wants to create a platform for artists and designers, uh, makers in Aarhus, and create a platform for them that can be cooperatively owned to give them global visibility. So between that and the many other things that are going on, it's just uh, wonderful to have these people in my life, and that certainly makes me get up um, every morning. Here is a short overview on Platform Co-op. So maybe it would be good to give a two-sentence definition of what is a Platform Co-op. Yeah, sure. I mean, so you had the original promise of the sharing economy, which was quite uh, uh, genuine and uh, promising, which was that, you know, there could be environmental sustainability, there could be genuine sharing of cars, of tools, of uh, space. And uh, much of that really, uh, when the logic of venture capitalism uh, kicked in quite quickly, basically devolved into platform capitalism as usual. And uh, so what uh, platform cooperatives try to do is basically bring the model of cooperatives, some 170, uh, 200 years old, and apply that to the digital economy, which concretely means that, let's say, you have a platform like Uber, that uh, the drivers would own the platform and would democratically vote on what is happening on that platform. There are many differences. Uh, this is not just sort of replacing one owner with the other, but it actually also means that there are significant design differences, that the logic, of course, of a platform is different if the workers or users and consumers, right, in the case of multi-stakeholder competence, are owning it. So it's basically embedding the cooperative values in the code uh, of, of those platforms and make sure that the, the platforms that people rely on most every day, right, when they get up, are actually also having a say in what happens on those platforms. Right? So that you are not basically a, a passive consumer, but, but that you also have some say, like, which was really the original vision, certainly, of the World Wide Web. Uh, right? It was never meant to be this kind of um, concentration that we are seeing right now. Exactly, yeah. The read-write web was what, what uh, Tim Berners-Lee called it initially. But that, of course, was not the first reality. And, and I can add that, that it's, it's great fun to be uh, in Trevor's uh, circle of friends. Uh, because I, you get the sense, um, and almost uh, daily, 
from his uh, emails and the things that are floating uh, across his desk that sometimes land on mine, uh, that he's really sort of uh, caught lightning in terms of the way he's positioned his scholarship and his activism. And the group of people that are coalescing around him and, and Nathan and, and some of the other uh, key early leaders of this movement are really involved in inventing uh, a different future for us. So, and Trevor, your that's new... What, your yeah, new... That's, what, that's what makes it so uh, incredibly exciting to be uh, a part of this uh, circle. You know, I was a technology correspondent for 20, 25 years before I moved full-time into um, social activism and, and eventually government service. Um, and my job was to spot trends. And so I wrote some of the first stories that were ever written in Silicon Valley about things like the router, when it first was invented, mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> anticipating how it might impact the way we live. And I wrote one of the first stories that was ever published about Yahoo when the company was just getting started, talking about what a directory mm. of the web might enable. And, and you could see at each of those junctures, there was a group of people who were coalescing around a new idea that was enabled by technology and, and enabling people to live in different ways. And I, and I got the exact same sense when I was at the meeting that uh, Trevor and colleagues organized of the initial meeting of the platform, a cooperative mm. consortium, mm -hmm. that, you know, here was a group of people who independently had figured out and had and arrived at a similar sort of diagnosis of a set of uh, social and economic problems created by the misapplication of technology and who are using their uh, intelligence and their resources to architect uh, a different way for the Internet to operate. And as each of them succeed, they encourage more interest and success by others. So I have this very same feeling that I had when I was here at Ground Zero uh, watching the Internet being created, that the group of people who are coalescing around this idea um, are also uh, involved in a process of rapid growth that's going to lead to dramatic changes in the way we all interact with the Internet um, to meet the kind of needs that we uh, turn to technology to satisfy. And, you know, that's very exciting. Yeah. And so, Trevor, your new title uh, is going to be Lightning Rod, right? But Lightning Catcher, maybe. Lightning Catcher. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Perfect. But I think it's important to, you know, rather than sort of putting people sort of on pedestals, it's more... I think it's more really about the acknowledgement that there are very many people that, you know, nobody's talking about that really make this happen every day, right? And so mm -hmm. uh, there are so many developments, and it's like these drivers in Cape Town, right, or right. these artists uh, that we spoke about, and the, you know, immigrant women in Queens uh, that are working on uh, the labor platform Up and Go, right, that's cooperatively yeah. organized. So, you know, like, people don't really talk about them, but I think they are really the ones that make this happen, and they are the ones that we should celebrate. So what do you think are going to be the systemic impacts of a platform cooperative? in the economy? How will it address disparity? Well, I think what's really important is uh, that the question that is placed on, uh, you know, cooperatives in the economy at large, I mean, not just platform cooperatives, but cooperatives in general, there's often this uh, question posed about, like, what is their contribution to the GDP? I think in the United States it's around 3%. It's relatively small. 
but what uh, I think you need, one needs, what is missing from that picture and also from that analysis is the other value that is also created, right? The social value. And Jutta mm-hmm. and I, you know, we talked about this. Yeah, full social costing that is less short-sighted and less uh, reductionist in terms of the value that is contributed by any one measure or impact. Yeah, the word that often comes up is extractive. And um, the the commercial um, platform owners sort of operate with an extractive business model. Their entire uh, uh, reason for living as as a corporation is to... Uh, organize something that they may call a community and then look for ways to extract wealth from that community. Mm-hmm. And so what these platform cooperatives are doing is they're allowing the cooperatives to uh, retain and grow their own wealth within their community um, rather than having it uh, siphoned off. And another thing that's, I think, really worth emphasizing here, at least from the frame that I see this, is that we've seen this before. This is part of why I get so excited about it is because I have no doubt that these platform cooperatives are going to grow and succeed. And the reason is because it mirrors the history of technology virtually since the dawn of civilization. Uh, If you look at it, you, you realize that every new tool that humankind has ever invented or had access to, uh, its use has initially been dominated by bullies, uh, by strongmen. Um, you know, peasants weren't the first people to get chariots. The first well was undoubtedly controlled by some strongman uh, who tried to exploit the position of controlling access to the well to their own benefit, until eventually the villagers clubbed him over the head and turned it into a public resource. Uh, we saw the same thing with uh, uh, every new technology, and it's, so it's not surprising that the first uh, social class that benefits the most, that seizes the new technology, exploits it effectively, and manages to accrue its benefits solely to themselves are uh, wealthy corporate interests. They are the first people to be able to create something like a Facebook or like a Airbnb because it took a lot of wealth to create that, and then they use that tool to exploit others. And it always takes the rest of us, the, the, the larger population, there's always a lag between when the new technology comes and becomes available and when it can be controlled effectively and harnessed to, you, to, to benefit a, a people, a more people. And so I think we're at that inflection point now, and I see the platform cooperatives as, as a kind of a hinge in the history of technology. It's the, it's the turning point where these important platforms that enable human interactions for commerce and learning and other things like that, um, that were created and dominated by a few major corporate players, where the tools to create replicas of that, that instead operate under more democratic, humanistic, less exploitive principles, that that opportunity has just now fallen into the laps of activists around the world. And what we're seeing and what Trevor has been chronicling and helping people to recognize is that it's not just the home health care workers in one community, and it's not just the taxi drivers in Colorado, and it's not just the cooperative that's organizing in South Africa, but it's all of us together all around the world recognizing that there is now a new way to organize commerce and that we don't need to be part of extractive networks, that we can instead build, own, and control our own. And some of these will be failures, undoubtedly. Others will succeed. But I have no doubt 
that they're going to change the face of the Internet. And it's another reminder that the Internet is not finished yet. There's this sense that when we wake up in the morning that what we see and when we turn on the Internet is some fixed reality. Um, but it's a very fluid reality. Yeah, it's a complex adaptive system. Yeah, and uh, the Internet system. is constantly reinventing itself. And this new platform cooperatives movement is, I think, the most hopeful reinvention of the Internet uh, in, in many, many years. Thank you, Hal, for characterizing this, this evolution of this complex adaptive system that is the Internet. One of the things that concerns me, though, in the analogy that you've uh, given is that uh, what we find uh, happens with these types of technologies quite often is that they become an echo chamber of prior assumptions, uh, power structures, etc. So they, they, in fact, amplify the disparity that's already there. How can we, whether popularity echo chamber with social media or whether it's a financial, um, with financial trading, the rich get richer, the, the poor get poorer, technology isn't necessarily always sufficiently disruptive of the wealth disparity nor the power disparity. How do platform cooperatives address that? Or how can we design them since it's something that's emergent and where we still have an opportunity to intervene to make sure that it isn't that same amplification or echo chamber of what is already there? Well, I'll let you try that one first, Trevor, and I, I have some thoughts, but I'd love yeah. to hear from you on it. I guess like what I was thinking of and how this talking is uh, Carlotta Perez. Right, uh, the scholar who talks about technological bubbles. And well, some of the analysis is uh, more that you have this sort of more playful, uh, you know, like with the ham radio and uh, just if you look at the history of radio, but also with uh, the Internet culture, there was a much more democratic sense, right, which then has moved towards uh, towards uh, this concentration that we are seeing now. and uh, Yeah, a skunk works environment before. Yeah, and uh, from there, so now there's a sense sort of like that, as a recognition of that and the really sense of wanting to break out of that. And, well, I mean, so in terms of uh, the prerogatives, I think people really have to, uh, I'm thinking of what Julia Shaw uh, found in her research, that if uh, people want to build for social justice, then they have to really start with the people that they want to end up with. So, uh, you know, if you want a platform to have a diverse group of people populating it, you also have to start with, yeah. with a diverse group of people. So this is what we are certainly trying also with our next uh, conference, November 10th to 11th in, at the New School again, where we are convening and uh, try to reflect some of that diversity. Uh, so that would be one point. Yeah, and, and I would add... The research that the platform cooperatives are doing into their customer base uh, is also another indication of how we can use these technologies not to replicate or amplify existing social and economic inequities, which is, I think, the heart of your question, and which often happens. And that's all, again, that's also a trend in technology. You know, when, uh, when motion pictures were first in invented, or television was first invented, rather, the imagination was so limited that the first thing they did was just film people doing radio shows. And uh, because they didn't really realize what television was capable of doing. So television was a new way to broadcast radio. Eventually, the people who 
were involved in the television industry realized that it had capabilities of communication in, di in ways that were different than just showing radio programs, and they invented a new medium. Uh, platform cooperatives are inventing a new way of using technology to close social inequities. Uh, one of the, the key research points that got me so convinced that Trevor was right and that this was worth paying attention to uh, were the surveys of customers that platform cooperatives have done. There was one bit of research presented at the last conference in, at the New School um, that they surveyed the customers of a cooperatively owned home health care nursing system about their levels of satisfaction with the nurses that were being placed in their homes through this cooperative. And the levels of satisfaction were high, very high, higher than one would expect from the traditional home health care system, which has a lot of customer complaints. And when I talked with the woman behind the research, she told me that one of the reasons that they were hearing this was that the customers were saying that they felt better using a service where they knew that most of the money that they were paying was going to the nurse who was providing care to them. And that one result of that was the nurses got more money, and they tended to stay on the jobs longer. They had higher job satisfaction. Greater loyalty, yes. Greater loyalty. So what I realized from that is that that's not just true of people who buy home health care nursing services. You know, if I go to the mechanic, I want to know that I, the money I pay for my car mechanic is going to go to him or her. Uh, when I use any service, I want to know that the people who are providing the service are benefiting from it. And so that's a more equitable social-commercial relationship, and it leads to greater equity uh, in terms of um, providing uh, greater chances for people to uh, have a living wage, or at least to have a wage that's closer to what people are willing to pay for the services that they deliver. So there are ways. Technology by itself, it, it's like a hammer. You know, you can use a hammer to build a house, or you can use a hammer to knock down a house. And these uh, Internet platforms can be used to help people uh, live inside or, or force more people into homelessness. And the difference is, are the policies that we choose and the practices that we choose about how we're going to use the hammer. How are we going to use the Internet? How are we going to use this technology? The technology won't make that decision by itself. And that's why I've been arguing that there's also a role for public policy to play. ethos of platform cooperatism is so well aligned with the ethos of inclusive design. But one of the things that we found in inclusive design that we're constantly grappling with is this tension between cooperation and competition or collaboration and competition. All of our, our education system, our financial systems, our investment systems are all primed for competition. And in fact, if you look at the government rhetoric, it's all about the best, the brightest, the most competitive, who um, the survivor takes, the winner takes all type of mentality. Um, we, I just met with actually this investment firm that said the markets and everything is about who can get an unfair advantage. So how do we push against that a very, very dominant pattern and almost unseeing way or something that is built into the ethos, the our social structures from education to yeah. business, etc. Well, I think one thing that uh, 
Frank Pasquale uh, pointed out in his uh, review of ours to hack and to own, uh, and I think he's right, is was that basically the monopolies are set to compete with each other. They spend enormous resources uh, fighting each other, whereas cooperatives have a very different spirit. So like uh, the six of the seven cooperative principles is basically that cooperatives help other cooperatives. Uh, so the guiding value is completely different. So this is literally something that a venture capitalist-based uh, uh, enterprise could not do or is not designed to do, whereas cooperatives are designed to do that. And what that concretely means is that they could share data sets. Uh, so we are thinking about a cooperative uh, data commons where uh, basically peer production licenses could facilitate advantage for cooperatives among each other. And uh, secondly, could also think about this very difficult problem of uh, data storage, uh, which is uh, even most cooperatives are on the Amazon cloud because it's just relatively inexpensive and safe. And uh, so to get those data out of the Amazon service would be another objective would be how you could create cooperative cloud storage, for example. But this is really very complicated because uh, cryptographically, like to create a wall around your data is very expensive and arduous, especially if you are dealing with sort of smaller enclaves. So, or I should say, basically these enterprises with boundaries. So the strength yeah, of the collective. I, 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 I think you've touched on a very important question, and it's one that Creative Commons, as an organization, has a lot of experience with. It's, it's relevant here, right, I right. think, to the growth of the platform cooperatives movement. Um, Creative Commons is an organization that provides intellectual property licenses that um, enable collaboration in uh, art, science, mm -hmm. education, and business. And when we first built our, our, our initial licenses, these are uh, intellectual property licenses that essentially allow people to share things uh, with a legal mm -hmm. infrastructure mm -hmm. behind them that protects their rights to make sure that uh, people are not exploiting the things that they want to share in ways that they didn't allow or, or anticipate. And, you know, it's not a perfect, we're, we're, I'm not arguing that we have a perfect regime and we're always trying to improve ourselves, but one of the early questions that we had at Creative Commons was who would ever use these licenses? Uh, who would, that we often heard that it was a fool's errand to create intellectual property licenses that would ride on top of copyright that would allow people to share things for free. Who would ever want to create something and then give it away? Well, a couple of years ago, we, we issued our one billionth license, um, a huge appetite among people who are creating intellectual property and then who want to share it, um, some, uh, often out of altruistic motivations, sometimes for reasons of uh, wanting to get recognition as being an expert in a field, uh, wanting to move a, a field of science or education or scholarship forward. And so there's an enormous appetite. Um, for it, and, I, and it comes down to essentially, uh, I think, what's been a profound misreading of human nature uh, by the a tiny fringe, a real tiny fringe of radical, uh, selfish economic thinkers who have posited the idea that crass economic self-interest is the only motivating factor that matters in human affairs. And we know that that's not true, and we know that that's never been true in human history. But that ethos has overtaken our governing structures and our financial and economic structures. 
Uh, there's, I've had a great deal of trouble finding a single business school in the United States that has an effective program on the management of cooperatively run businesses. Virtually all, there may be one exception, but virtually all of the business schools in the U.S. are focused on this single winner-takes-all uh, version of business. And it's the only thing they're doing research in, and it's the only thing they're promoting, as if there's no other way to organize productive economic affairs between human beings. And we know there are cooperatives, and those entities should be studied and improved and are capable of continuous improvement. I think one of the key governance principles that Trevor and his colleagues have identified that underlies a lot of these platform cooperatives is called the Rochdale Principles uh, for the management of cooperatively run enterprises. And they're a pretty thin but ra radically effective uh, set of new principles for organizing a business that can build a kind of uh, sense of community and common purpose. One of the key principles, for example, is that when the cooperative is successful in its business enterprises and generates a surplus, that the surplus doesn't flow to the CEO or to a few well-placed shareholders, but instead the surplus is pumped back in to the operations of the cooperative so that it can expand and provide better opportunities, including living opportunities for its members. That's a very powerful governing principle that changes the way commerce works. It doesn't eliminate capitalism. It humanizes capitalism. And we're seeing the application of these Rochdale principles in many of these platform cooperatives. And you were talking about pivot points and the fact that society is primed for this type of disruption. Um, one of the other areas where there is a questioning or deconstruction or radical sort of rethinking is with in Darwinian theory as well. There's quite a bit of merging to show that it's not, in fact, survival of the fittest that moves us forward as a human race, but it's at the points of the relaxation of survival of the fittest when there were more choices and when there was a collaborative effort that language developed and any other leaps forward within the human race occurred. Do you think that our society is at a point where this pivot point will be effective, where we are primed to think about a new strategy? Well, I think what you saw, uh, I think the sort of, I guess you were also referring to Kropotkin, right? Like the sort of principles of mutual aid yeah. based on the misunderstanding of social Darwinism, uh, mm -hmm. of the misunderstanding of Darwin uh, yeah, that you see exactly. in social Darwinism. Yes, and Terence Deacon uh, and many and, others, yeah. Uh, right. And so I think it was books like Aftermath and others, like Humanizing the Economy, all that describe uh, beautifully how in the aftermath of 2008, right, like on the heels of the financial crisis, basically this uh, extractive sharing economy really was able to erect this gig economy that, you know, was quite successful in stalling worker rights, was uh, quite successful in the United States at least, uh, to push uh, labor markets to the internet and thereby yeah, so starting labor rights, but also uh, pushing people away from direct employment, right? So, uh, which 65 and sometimes last study I looked at even put the number at 68 million Americans being freelancers now or, you know, independent contract workers. 
that is all sort of, I think, you know, to be seen, of course, in the context of the last 40 years of basically wages, if adjusted for inflation, having stayed the same, while uh, productivity of the American worker increased. So I think all of that led also to a renaissance of uh, cooperatives. So it's, I mean, this I see very strongly, that yeah. there is renaissance of cooperatives, that there is a return to that model, that people realize that basically in that there are these giants, in a way, hidden in plain sight, right? So one in three Americans is a member of a cooperative uh, mm-hmm. of some kind, right? A food cooperative, housing cooperative, perhaps a worker cooperative, though they are in about a small number in the United States, and that they exert quite a bit of economic power as well. You know, like if you think of Ace Hardware or REI, uh, these are well-known brands, and people often don't associate them with cooperatives. So they are sort of hidden in plain sight. Yes, and I, and I think that this change, that the, that the ability of these platform cooperatives to, to achieve a significant market share here in the United States uh, and around the world, I don't know whether it's, you know, 5%, 10%, 15%. You know, there's a certain point where they achieve a, a large enough market share that then the momentum carries them uh, even further. And I think that this could happen faster than most people anticipate. The dry tinder uh, is all around in the global marketplace to allow this new trend uh, to catch on with e- speed uh, even greater than we've seen other technology trends uh, permeate global marketplaces in recent years. And we know how fast those kinds of things can happen. And the, one of the trip points, I think, that could really accelerate it is if you can imagine complementary public policies. Income inequality is a glaring problem, as Trevor pointed out, a problem that continues to get worse here in the U.S. and around the world. And if we see evidence, continued evidence, that the platform cooperatives are uh, the first and only way uh, that we begin to reverse that trend, that the tools that created income inequality, if applied in a different way, can reduce income inequality uh, through their more intelligent application. Then if we pair it with some complementary public policies, for for example, imagine if uh, local and state and federal governments created a preference in public purchasing uh, for purchases from firms that are worker-owned cooperatives with an explicit goal of re-empowering workers so that they can achieve higher wages and better working conditions. And imagine if the government, the first government to do that, uh, then saw a, a, a reduction in income equality as a result of those policies and a re-enfranchisement of workers, and as those workers had more income, they could spend more and create the virtuous economic cycle that uh, reverses the downward spiral that we've seen uh, in terms of workers' rights around the world. That as soon as that that is uh, proven in one jurisdiction, where what's happening now in the private sector economy with the growth of these platform cooperatives is supported by uh, complementary public policies, and they result in reversal of these uh, damaging economic trends that will then see that spread rapidly around uh, the world, particularly in any countries where people still have a vote. And, um, and once that happens, I think this will all spread like wildfire. So I'm really very hopeful about the future of, of platform cooperatives and the role that they will play in finally realizing the initial promise 
uh, that uh, these new developments in digital technologies and the Internet and whatever uh, could be used as a way to equalize opportunities mm -hmm. and more opportunities for decent economic prospects uh, rather than destroying that. And so we're just on the verge of that now. But I do think that when it hits a certain tripwire, which I anticipate in the near future, that this will spread faster than anyone imagines. And the thing um, that digital technologies can do is to create that network effect. Um, now, the network effect is going to be greatest when we create not just uh, isolated co-ops, but also a network of co-ops. Um, one of the things that would dampen or that would divert some of the energy that you're talking about is fragmentation. How do you think we can maintain or how do, how do you think we can stop that fragmentation to allow that pooling and sharing effect and the collaboration across different co-op efforts? To wrap up and maybe to respond a little bit to Hal and also to what you just, uh, I would say that it's really important to stay in touch with reality, so to really look at what is actually happening uh, in those cooperatives, so to really academic research them that looks at where are the opportunities in which sector may this succeed uh, the most, and so to not sort of repeat the Silicon Valley rhetoric, but to really sort of look at and be realistic and honest about what's really happening there. Uh, so I think it, it works uh, quite well in some examples and other examples don't work so well. And you have to look at why that is the case. So I think issues are funding, right? Uh, so, um, so we saw just yesterday we had a big success uh, where a very large cooperative in the United States started to support us. But uh, I think this is the, what is needed, right? It is, we need the cooperative sector to understand that if they don't get involved also with their funding, these innovators will be hired by Google or Amazon or Facebook, right? So they will not hang around forever. So they really have to invest in their own future, you know, and if you see this sort of shift towards Internet market, labor markets moving to the internet, and also society as a whole, right? Like moving into uh, in the direction of digitalization, then it's clear that this is also what cooperatives have to support to to secure their own uh, future. Then there's the challenge of uh, governance, right? So if you have these uh, enterprises that uh, with workers being distributed. Uh, you know, across the country, perhaps, who certainly don't meet in person, you want to uh, operate, a, uh, you know, democratically run one worker, one vote uh, operation, then you need to figure out uh, what these mechanisms of governance and of democracy will be, right? So how do you facilitate quite concretely uh, democratic governance? What does it actually mean, right, in reality? So I think these, that that's a piece that's not really figured out. And to come to Yuta's point, uh, I think that it's really about creating counter-narratives, right? So I think it's as much a, a cultural struggle as it is uh, perhaps a technical and economic one. So because also these narratives have to be uh, pushed back, right? So the narratives that are dominating this whole discourse around the sharing economy and what they count as innovation, for example, right, should be questioned, is creating amounts of profit uh, for shareholders in a very short time. If you associate that with innovation, then I think you have uh, a quite a, a flawed 
understanding of that, right? So what do we actually think of as innovation? And uh, sort of to rethink concepts like that and to really create a counter-narrative to these discourses. And I think, speaking to you from Berlin, these kind of social values of social democracy are something that also Europeans can contribute because it's so much more in our DNA, right? I mean, at least it's the society surrounding us. Germany is still a social democracy. So how, while they certainly don't have the funding that Silicon Valley can uh, uh, contribute, they definitely have uh, a set of lift values that I think can be part of that discussion of the digital economy. Yes, and 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 I would add that the U.S., has some strengths that can contribute to the European contribution <laughs> yes. here. And, and, and one of them is, is, is I see this as part of the long human struggle for freedom, um, that the United okay. States and its constitution um, and, and its ethos really embodies. Uh, human beings uh, don't take well to being held captive. And part of what we've been involved in for centuries now is this struggle uh, uh, over generations to enable the expression of human freedom. Technology is now being used to curtail human freedom and to subject us to mass surveillance and to, ex- to subject us to extractive modes of economic commerce that uh, reduce us, many of us, into a state of pauperism. And what is happening now is the opportunity for us to have a new birth of freedom, and that's something that's, I think, at the core, a uh, very American idea. And a very Canadian... And an idea that resonates with many Americans in their most fundamental sense of their national identity. And when we can connect those threads, the European uh, democratic impulses that uh, Trevor is identifying, and uh, the American quest to enable human freedom... And these platform cooperatives are positioned as part of that. Uh, then again, I think that they have the opportunity to have widespread uh, support and participation. And Canada brings the inclusion and diversity component, uh, a long history of cooperatives. <laughs> Thank you so much, both of you, for participating in this. Do you want to say anything? Yeah, on, no, I think yeah. we can. It was an enlightening uh, uh, conversation, and I'm very grateful uh, to Hal for all his contributions and for connecting us, which was a really big uh, contribution, and also for uh, doing the policy work that he does and uh, for promoting uh, this discourse in the way that he does, which I'm uh, very grateful for. Thank you so much, Hal. That fills my heart, and I'm delighted to hear it. And, and so much of what Trevor said, I would love to share with uh, many people who I think would be interested in it. We encourage you to visit Platform Co-op website for further information. Platform.coop Thank you for listening to this episode. For more information, please check our website, quantization.ca. Next episode, we have Vivek Sharia and Carly Howell in conversation about the role of gender in music industry. We want to thank all who support us. 
and a special thank to Marshall Bureau who composed all the scores for quantization. Quantization Podcast.